Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Now we receive this vote in silence. House of Bishops in favour 36 against four recorded abstentions, two. House of Clergy in favour 111 against 85 recorded abstentions, three. House of Laity 103 in favour against 92 recorded abstentions, five. So the motion is carried. After eight hours of debate, the General Synod agreed on Thursday to welcome the Bishop's proposals to provide prayers to bless same-sex unions in church, but with a last-minute clarification that their use would not contradict the Church's current teaching on marriage. You can read more on this week's meeting of the Synod at churchtimes.co.uk, and there'll be detailed reports of every debate in next week's issue. On the podcast this week, Church Times reporter Francis Martin gauges the reactions of Synod members, from those who welcome the outcome to those who did not. First, he speaks to the Bishop of Newcastle, Dr. Helen Ann Hartley. So, I mean, can I start by asking how how you feel coming out of a marathon debate like that? Well, over eight hours, it's certainly been a marathon debate, and I have to say, all credit to um, to Geoffrey Tassel, who, who chaired it so so brilliantly and so calmly, and I think also to Bishop Sarah for the way in which she just held the space and responded. So, I think although it was a very long debate, it's, it feels like it was the right amount of time um, to give it. So, in some ways, I'm pleased that we've had had that amount of time on it, um, and as somebody who was part of the House, or is part of the House of Bishops who moved the motion, I'm pleased and relieved that it has passed. Do you think uh, that the feelings that we, we heard expressed on both sides of the debate, you know, very, very strong feelings, um, how can the Church and, and bishops such as yourself affect healing now and and really now that we've done some of the formal process really lean into the pastoral yeah certainly I think I mean a big feature of of the LLF process and the fact that it was sort of couched with the the pastoral principles I think has been a real attention to to people and to people's lives and we've heard that quite a lot in the debate and of course now that we're we're through um, the other side of, of the debate for now, I think that it's really important, particularly for bishops as chief pastors and shepherds, to really attend to those pastoral relationships on the ground, you know, back in our diocese. Um, so I think attending to the whole sense of the process of LLF, you know, it doesn't just stop now, it's, it's, it's ongoing, particularly in terms of, of, of pastoral care for people who might still be affected by, by the issues that we've raised. The pastoral guidance that is going to replace issues in human sexuality yeah. has, been a, has been a sort of a constant refrain yeah. during the yeah. debate. Yeah. Um, we're now entering a stage where a group of bishops will be formed to decide uh, what, what pastoral guidance, what that pastoral guidance will be. Mm. Um, I don't want to ask you to pre-guess what that, what that might be, yeah. but in terms of you know, the things that you heard uh, this week after mm. the LLF group work, for instance, 
Um, what is your sense for, for where the church should go with that guidance? Mm. Well, I think clearly there was, a, there was a huge level of disquiet across the board about issues in human sexuality. So I'm really glad that, that once we have the pastoral guidance, um, that, will, that will go. It, it was never meant to be used in the way it was, but you know, we have to draw a line under that and, and move on. And I think the advantage of the debate that we've had in the chamber over the eight-hour period is that it's really given the bishops a chance to, to hear and listen to some of those issues. Um, and you know, while I can't remember the detail of eight hours of debate, <laughs> I know that there'll be some real, um, real forensic analysis of uh, taking care to attend to the sorts of issues that we heard from across the range of views, you know, everything from um, a sense of reassurance for those who, who might in conscience not be able to use the prayers, um, but also a sense in which clergy themselves can, can use the prayers um, confidently and, and not be fearful of, of any repercussions. So I think there's a huge range of, of issues and I think quite helpfully Judith Maltby when she spoke raised the issue of safeguarding um, and how it has related to, to LLF. So I think it's important really to, to take time and to pay attention and ensure that when we develop the pastoral principles that there are a range of views that are represented in, in, in how that happens so that we can really get it right. There was some anxiety before the debate about how it would come across to people at large. You know, we have a lot of media here. Um, do you think the church acquitted itself quite well over the course of those eight hours? I think so. I have to say yes. Um, I saw a, a tweet, I think, by Ben Bradshaw kind of saying, gosh, if only the House of Commons could engage in debate with such um, civility and, and good measure as, um, as we have. I, I genuinely think we have. And that part, a lot of that was down to the excellent chairing. Um, but I do think that people were respectful um, and listen well to one another. So I think the quality of the debate, the quality of listening and engagement, which has been part of LLF, I think that, that's been a really important marker of culture in the church and I hope that people outside have seen that. And do you think that that's something that in the, the College and House of Bishops, um, where you know, a, a, a broad range of views are represented, um, do you feel that same level of um, being able to kind of come together and, and you know, acknowledge differences, but to continue, as they say, walking together. I think so. I think one of one of the one of the features of the residentials that we've had as a as a college of bishops has been, perhaps you know, as never before, um, a desire to engage and listen to one another. I do think that was challenged by the leak that came out of the college, and that did damage trust. But having seen and listened to colleagues during the debate. Um, I'm confident that we can get all that back on back on track. But I, I do I do genuinely think in the college because it's been not just the house, it's been all of the bishops. Actually, the way that we've listened to one another has been has been really good, and I think people hopefully have felt heard, which is really important. One of the frequent um, concerns that people raised was about the impact of this on the Anglican Communion. Mm. How profound do you think that will be? Well, I speak, of course, as somebody who became a bishop in another part of the Anglican Communion in, in New Zealand, which uh, uniquely, perhaps, holds difference in, in a very particular way. And I think models holding difference very well. The New Zealand Church, of course, has, has come to a mind over, over issues and allows uh, the blessing um, of same-sex marriages. So I think it's important when we talk about the Communion that we're really careful not to describe it in, in a monolithic way, that it is representative of, of all sorts of views um, and I think that Archbishop Justin going to Ghana to the Anglican Consultative Council will be, will be well aware of all of that and I do feel for him as he holds that important role. Ed Shaw is a lay member from the Diocese of Bristol 
and a co-chair of the Church of England Evangelical Council. He gave his reaction to the vote. You um, spoke in the debate and you focused your remarks on the question of, of differentiation. You said you would actually welcome same-sex marriage in the church if the conditions are right and the structures are right. Um, I wonder if we could perhaps start with a conversation about what those things might look like and perhaps more importantly why they feel so necessary for you. Well, I think we've certainly got to the point where we can't continue on this discussion in the way that we have forever. I mean, obviously, at one level, a vote has been passed today. We now have same-sex blessings. We all know that within the next five to ten years, we're going to be discussing same-sex marriage. I would love to bring the debate to a close, really, by coming up with something that, that will last as a solution, rather than today that isn't going to be a lasting solution that's acceptable to anybody, really. And I can understand completely why, from, as it were, the other side, if I can use that language as well as my own. Um, why is it such a big thing? Well, I think it's a big thing because I would see the rejection of biblical teaching around sex and marriage as a rejection of our apostolic inheritance and that when something that big is rejected by people, uh, there needs to be some form of separation, differentiation um, to, well, to not just a protest, but in some ways as a call to repentance from the people that have, we believe, wandered away from apostolic truth in the hope that sometime soon they, they will return. And I suppose I've been informed by biblical passages like 1 Corinthians 5. I'm also wanting to draw on um, you know, some of Jesus' teaching about handling disagreements in the church and say there needs to be a call to repentance. And that one of the ways that the New Testament suggests you do that is by saying, you know, you, you separate yourself, not out of a sort of, um, we hate and dislike you, but out of a, we love you so much that we want to say that what you're doing now is not good, not in line with what the apostolic inheritance of the church is, and therefore we want to sort of signal that by bringing in some separation in the hope that at some point we'll be able to reunite and return to you know, um, a sort of full working relationship in the future, if that makes sense. We heard um, from, from several um, same-sex attracted gay Christians in yeah. the debate uh, who've chosen to live celibate lives. Do you think those voices are being adequately heard at the moment? Um, if I listened, I mean, listening into the speeches, I think a number of them were saying that they're not being adequately listened to at the moment. We've become so obsessed on same-sex marriage and blessing and we haven't thought um, what are we saying to people like me also gay same-sex attracted and believe in churches or just being teaching we haven't really thought how this is going to go down with us and you know the the massive discouragement is to have been part of a church that has been officially supportive of us until about whenever it was, you know, about an hour or so ago, a church is actually, well, who knows what we're saying actually about sex and marriage at the moment. I mean, obviously we've had a debate, there were various reassurances given about um, how the doctrine of marriage hasn't changed, but when it comes to sex um, and sexuality in general, there was a huge silence and we've been told that a lot is going to be clarified by pastoral guidance that's somehow going to hold everything together and be written by July, which is you know, a remarkable task the church has set itself, and a slightly implausible one for any of us who've been on discussions of this. You know, get a group of Anglicans together in the room and try and talk about sex and marriage. You're not going to sort of bring 
guidance that's clear and helpful um, in, you know, what? within months, years, probably decades, which I suppose is why I'm going back to the let's come to a settlement, let's come to uh, some negotiated settlement and differentiation that actually puts a line under this and allows people fo to focus on uh, mission, pastoral care, according to our conscience. Another um, sort of set of voices uh, we heard in the debate were heterosexual people who had um, uh, again abided by the traditional teaching of the church as it regards marriage and, and, and sexual activity um, do you feel that, that those people have been uh, devalued um, in, in this process in the same way well, I mean, it's always to urge people to listen to the speeches, and I think what you'll pick up when you hear the speeches is that they do feel, because, because there's so little clarity now from the House of Bishops on, on what the place of sex is in human relationships and how it fits in with human flourishing, that anybody who's a sexual being, actually all of us, are going to be really unclear as to exactly what the Church of England is teaching and urging us to live out and in practice. I don't think any of us know. Um, the, there, was, there was a lot of concern, I think, by, by many people before the debate about the tone with which it would be conducted. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think the church actually acquitted itself okay this week? Yeah, I, I mean, I was here in 2017. I think the tone this time round was better. I think there will be moments, you know, it'll be hard for anybody not to have been hurt by some of what was said. It'd be hard for there not to be moments where we sort of winced, perhaps by, as we heard people on our own side or coming from our own perspective and how they perhaps put things in slightly more strident terms than we might have. But generally, I think the tone was better. Um, as a member of the pastoral advisory group that wrote the pastoral principles, part of me hopes they've helped. I do think they'll less help because in that we're also better informed as to where the disagreements lie, why we have... Uh, these irreconcilable differences when it comes to sex and marriage in particular. Mm. At the very end uh, of the debate, the Archbishop of York talked about the need for some form of settlement. Um, what do you hope for, to see there? Um, I was really grateful that the Archbishop of York uh, picked up on a number of speeches that, that called for, at this point, a settlement that allows a maximum degree of unity um, within the Church of England, but also recognises that we're fundamentally divided and there will need to be new structures to protect the consciences, the ministry of people coming from my perspective, churches that uh, like my church. So I'm really hoping to hear from uh, the Archbishops and others soon as to how we can move that conversation forward. They said they were up for that conversation. I'm really up for that conversation. I said that in my speech. I'm hoping that really soon we can sit down and uh, negotiate um, the pastoral provision that would be needed, the new structures that would be needed, and that we do that in an imaginative and bold way uh, going forward. The Bishop of Oxford, Dr Stephen Croft, recently called for the Church of England to allow clergy to marry same-sex couples in church and be able to marry same-sex partners themselves. He spoke to Francis shortly after the Synod vote was announced. Listening to a few of the interviews that various bishops have yeah. given, there's yeah. this really... There is a, you know, a lot of mixed emotions on all sides of the debate. Yeah. Is that how you feel as well? Yeah, I do really. I mean, it's been a very uh, intense experience being part of the debate. I feel uh, relieved and uh, pleased that the motion uh, was approved in the end, because um, I, I think the provision of prayers and love and faith and the new pastoral guidance and the apology uh, to LGBTQIA plus people are really 
significant steps uh, at this time. And I also think that um, having uh, same-sex relationships affirmed and blessed in churches across the country will be really helpful in making uh, in helping same-sex relationships be more visible and affirmed by the church and that in turn will lead over time to further change uh, but there's obviously a lot of emotions in the synod chamber and uh, uh, a lot of very um, uh, important things to process and as uh, Bishop Landon said in, uh, in her summing up the bishops were there to listen and we've tried to listen carefully and now need some time and space to reflect on that. You obviously are, are a supporter of introducing same-sex marriage yeah. in the church. Um, do you think that the fears that some have and the hopes that others have that this motion today puts us on a pathway towards that? Do you think that's true or do you think that actually we shouldn't be thinking so far into the future? Um, uh, no, I, I would like us to be thinking ahead into the future uh, and, I, and I think what will change people's hearts and minds most is getting to know um, same-sex couples who are in faithful, permanent, stable relationships. So I've always thought, and I still feel after the Synod debate, that um, uh, that will be a, a stepping stone to greater change in the future. Are you personally planning to bless couples and make use of these prayers when they become available? Yeah, if I was asked to do so, I'd be very happy to. Yeah, yeah, I'll send people your way. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, there was a lot of, uh, of emotion, of course, on the on the chamber floor today. Were you pleased with how, in general, the debate was conducted in terms of tone? Yeah, I, th I think in general terms, uh, the debate was conducted extremely well, and there was a good tone. There were some exceptions. Uh, it was chaired brilliantly, as everybody would have said. Um, I, I thought Bishop Sarah did a superb job of holding everything together, uh, and. Um, I think that the amendments were handled uh, on the whole gracefully uh, and supportively. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I thought, I, I hoped that Synod would rise to the big occasion, uh, and I think Synod did. Uh, but I think, apart from the women bishops debates, uh, this is the biggest occasion I've, I've experienced in, in Synod, actually. Uh, and I think there are probably more loose ends for people and thoughts and feelings to be worked through afterwards uh, than I've seen even in that debate really. The, the one, the solitary amendment that, that mm. finally got on uh, at, at the very end um, stating that uh, nothing in the proposal should be taken as a, as a deviation from the doctrine of the Church mm. of England. Were you glad to see that clarification on that? Uh, personally I voted against it because I think the, the essence of what was said uh, was already in the text of the paper uh, that the bishops had produced so it didn't add anything to the motion. Uh, I think there are two parts to the amendment which are quite distinct. Uh, the first is about uh, uh, endorsing the decision the bishops have made not to bring proposal on equal marriage. I think it's important to underline what Bishop Sarah said in her summing up that that was in reference to the decision we have made. It doesn't preclude a House of Bishops in the future uh, bringing a proposal for equal marriage. And the second was simply repeating wording which uh, was in the papers anyway and is actually in the uh, in the text of the canon under which we will be commending prayers of love and faith. Uh, and it's what enables us to do that. So it doesn't add or take away uh, anything. 
on that point, if we can sort of perhaps err into philosophy now, there's almost a difference that sort of develops between those who see the, the teaching of the church as something quite fixed hmm. uh, and unable to be uh, certainly changed, even sometimes questioned. Yeah. Um, and those, perhaps like yourself, who see this as part of an ongoing conversation and, and, and process. Ultimately, how sustainable is it for those people to, to be not just in the same church, but you know, in the same college of bishops? Well, as I look back on the history of the Church of England since the Reformation, uh, there have always been those two views represented in different ways. The issues have changed over which people have disagreed, but there have always been those uh, two emphases. And almost the special uh, gift and charism of the Church of England is to hold a number of different perspectives within one church. Uh, so over the last century we've had to deal with a number of different issues, the role of women in church and society, uh, remarriage after divorce uh, in church uh, and other issues uh, and the passions have been fierce on all those over time. Uh, uh, there is always this moment when decisions are made which feels painful and difficult but then the Church of England as it were comes back together around its common identity in Christ. So, so yeah, I think we're uniquely placed actually to hold together those different perspectives uh, and we have to relearn the skills of being honest with each other, saying where we differ, but discovering what's in common in every generation. The Bishop of Guildford, the Right Reverend Andrew Watson, was one of 14 bishops who signed a document defending traditional marriage. Here's what he said in the Synod debate. One of the real benefits of this debate in the group work that preceded it is that all our cards are now on the table, if they haven't been quite so before, and have generally been placed there in a passionate but respectful way. The House of Bishops has inevitably come under attack from all sides as we've sought to chart a path through our own profound disagreements. But as this debate has shown, those disagreements run right through the middle of the body of Christ, our beloved Church of England, and across all three houses. During the past few months, I, like many of us, I suspect, have shed tears as we've sought to square this apparently impossible circle. Tears for those I know and love who have felt excluded from the church on the grounds of their sexuality, including some who have chosen the courageous path of Christian celibacy. And tears too for others, myself included, who remain committed to a traditional doctrine of marriage as the church has received it, and of the gift of sex as belonging properly within it, whatever our recognition that none of us has the right to throw any stones here. And you feel that the church that we love and serve is somehow in danger of leaving us behind. And all our strenuous efforts to pass on the faith to younger generations, to revitalize dying congregations, and to raise up a generation of godly young leaders. And not just us. In danger too, as we've been periodically reminded, and movingly so during the course of this debate, of aligning ourselves with invariably small, rich, declining churches in the West, while distancing ourselves from largely poor, persecuted, growing churches in the South and East, and therefore from our sometimes moderating influence within them too, including many of the diaspora in our Church of England churches today. The problem is that despite our genuine compassion for our LGBTI sisters and brothers, and respect too for their heterosexual champions, and recognition of the homophobia that exists out there and maybe unconsciously in here too. And despite the internal battles between our heads and our hearts, which many of us can identify with and speak of, 
Some of us simply can't join in what sometimes seems like an inevitable journey eventually towards equal marriage. Our reasons are set out in a paper recently added to the LLF website entitled The Church of England's Doctrine of Marriage, a paper co-authored by a group of evangelical and Catholic bishops, and I would commend it to you if you've not read it yet. And the paper sets out the biblical vision of how marriage between a man and a woman was given in the beginning, as Jesus put it, and is an institution through which the goodness of creation is affirmed, the interdependence of humanity is celebrated, the story of salvation is depicted, and life is generated. It also traces some of the philosophical roots behind the modern idea of equal marriage, and especially the revolutionary values of liberté, égalité, and fraternité, which have led us to what the great Charles Taylor describes as a secular culture of expressive individualism. There is no glamorization of marriage in our paper, or indeed in the scriptures. Part of the problem, it argues, is that marriage has often been idealized and idolized as the pinnacle of human relating to which all should aspire, whereas scripture never portrays it in that light. And here's where the paper explores the idea behind the prayers that the House has brought to the Synod in this group of sessions, that there are undoubted goods to be found in long-term, same-sex covenanted friendships, and that some form of commended prayers might help to recognize those goods without changing the doctrine explicitly, though the implicit questions are much harder to settle and will prove still more so when it comes to drawing up the pastoral guidance. That is probably the best compromise we can come up with if we are honest. But if we are not prepared to settle there, there seem to be three alternatives. One is a war of attrition. Another is an ugly split, which could blow all of the visionary aspirations that we share as a church out of the water. And the third is what the Archbishop of York has just been talking about, and which I would very much wish to second, as a reluctant convert, as some know. And whether or not our motion this morning is passed in all three houses, I believe we now do have to have those settlement discussions forthwith. Otherwise, I fear that the evils of silence, fear, hypocrisy and a misuse of power, which a messy muddle is in danger of perpetuating further. Professor Helen King is the vice chair of the General Synod Gender and Sexuality Group. Were you expecting the result we got at the end of the day? I think I was never really sure whether the motion that the bishops had brought was going to go through. Once we'd amended it by affirming the traditional doctrine of marriage, I did wonder what that meant for the final vote, whether that meant that the people who were going to vote against it would suddenly vote for it, or whether they put it in there hoping that those of us who are more liberal would think, oh my goodness, I can't possibly vote for that, now that's in it and that we would then all join them in voting against it. So I wasn't at all sure when that amendment was passed what that meant. Uh, but as it happened, I don't know, obviously, what the Conservatives were thinking when they put that amendment through. Maybe it did persuade some people to vote for it who otherwise wouldn't have. But as far as we're concerned on the Liberal side of things, what matters is we've still got the prayers in draft. We've still got the commitment to get rid of issues in human sexuality, which we all find unworkable, and which I believe the bishops do find unworkable too. So actually, it's progress. 
there were obviously a lot of amendments on the table, only one of which actually uh, got added to the uh, motion. And some of them were amendments uh, in what I might call a liberal direction. How uh, disappointed were you to see those fail, particularly perhaps uh, Jane Ozan's uh, motion to put same-sex marriage on the agenda for July? I would like to get same-sex marriage on the agenda so we can discuss this properly. But I wasn't particularly disappointed that it failed because I think we need to have that first step where same-sex couples can come to church, can have their civil partnerships, civil marriages blessed, and then we can think about the next steps. So I always thought, because the Church of England is a slow-moving creature, you know, like a mighty tortoise moves the Church of God, brothers, we are treading where we've always trod, uh, we didn't think, therefore, it was going to get through. But I thought it's worth trying just to see whether that is something that Synod would consider at the moment. It isn't, and I understand that. It didn't necessarily come up a huge amount on the synod floor in the course of the debate, but one of the uh, approaches that the Conservative uh, side are taking is to ask for visible differentiation within the church. Um, is that something that you could see happening going forward? There have been discussions of structural differentiation between Conservatives and Evangelicals for the last three years. And I'm not at liberty to say who else is in them. We are allowed now to out ourselves as in those discussions. So I am out as in for the last three discussions because I'm the vice chair of the gender and sexuality group I've been included. These are absolutely fascinating conversations. And I don't know why they're not more publicised. So it's a group of conservatives and a group of liberals who have already started to talk about what that might mean. And that's why Bishop Stephen Croft was able to get his, his document, his booklet out so quickly with a response from Vaughan in the diocese very, very quickly because they've already been discussing this. So both of them have already outed themselves as part of the discussions. The discussions are happening. And I find it quite scary that they're happening because I don't want the church to split. But obviously some people do and we have to listen to them and find out what it is they think we can split on, what a split would look like, what unity would look like if there was a split. And that's the thing I haven't yet found an answer to. If we had separate bishops, separate ordinations, separate consecrations, separate confirmations, separate theological colleges, where would the unity lie? How would we still be one church if we'd have you know, branch A that does same-sex marriage and branch B that doesn't? And I haven't yet had that answered. But I think from Bishop Sarah's summing up, which mentioned differentiation, I think we are now moving towards a further discussion of that. And I think we should. We need to know what that looks like. There was some anxiety before the debate about the tone with which it would be conducted. Um, at the end of the day, do you think the Church of England actually acquitted itself all right? I think in the circumstances, yes, we did acquit ourselves reasonably well. There were some very bad moments. And there were people expressing comments where there were other people being upset by them. And that's probably true on both sides. Um, I don't know how you can have a discussion if you can't say what you think. And that will, inevitably, because we are so split, end up disturbing some people, maybe very seriously. So I don't think we did as badly <laughs> as one might fear. And I know that you know, could do better. Could have been a lot worse. The one of the sort of refrains that we, we heard many times in the debate was uh, concern about how this decision will impact the Anglican Communion. Um, is that something that you worry about? Mm -hmm. The Archbishop of Canterbury is obviously in a really tricky position as head of this church and also head of the Mother Church of the Anglican Communion and first among equals and all those sorts of things that the Anglican Communion 
gives him as his roles. He's obviously torn. But we know already that within the Anglican Communion there are churches which are dangerous, which support the existing um, anti-homosexual legislation of their countries. And the Anglican Communion is not just like that. It also has churches like the Episcopal Church in America and others who already welcome same-sex couples. So it's a thing the Anglican Communion is only an obstacle. There are churches in the Anglican Communion who would welcome us moving towards same-sex marriage. I hope that by passing that amendment, we have now got to a point where the Anglican Communion will not be disturbed. We're not yet doing same-sex marriage. Of course we might. They might too. But we're not doing it at the moment. And we've maintained the traditional teaching in that amendment. The canons are still there. Nothing has changed. What has changed, of course, and this is obviously why I'm enthusiastic about what we've done today, is that we will have something we can offer to faithful same-sex couples in our churches, which recognises their relationship and publicly celebrates it. And I hope that that will be the thin end of the wedge. Once people can see that actually there's not, there's not an issue here, these are just you know, these are faithful, loving relationships being blessed by the church. Is there a problem? I don't think there is. And who knows? By the time we get to it, what with being the Church of England, other parts of the Anglican community may also have moved in the same way. Uh, and finally, of course, they're not met. Um, it became clear that the, the the bishops' recommendations weren't necessarily dependent on Synod's approval. They were looking for, uh, for, for support, but it wasn't contingent on it. Um, how important do you think it was for Synod to debate and finally approve these, if they might well have been commended in any case? I think it was very important to the bishops. I'm quite sure that if we had completely thrown out everything in that motion, they would have had a rethink because they're not going to try and push something through without the rest of the church. Why would they do that? It's a recipe for chaos. So I think it's, it's a very good thing that we did pass this. Yes, we accept that the bishops have been wrestling with these issues, as have we all. Yes, we accept that they're not united. And of course, the thing about the votes today was having all those endless votes by houses, we could see exactly where the House of Bishops is and what it was happier with. And it really, apart from the amendment, the House of Bishops was not really happy with anything. So I think they've got to somehow maintain their collegiality, but the lid is off. We now know they think differently. Some bishops have actually spoken to their diocese or to the wider church about what their views are and why. I think it's really positive. The last five years when they've been unable to say anything on LLF because the process was rumbling on in the parishes and the diocese and deaneries, we've not had a clue as to how they think. And it's very affirming to find there are bishops who think like you. That's true for conservatives and for liberals. Like, oh, actually, my view is not that weird. There are other people in the Church of England who are in fact bishops who think like I do. I think that's really positive. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.